History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 259th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we are going with a suggestion by our listener, Rick Kennett, and this is the Princess Theater in Melbourne, Australia. So we're going down under once again. As we have come to find throughout the years of doing this podcast, theaters seem to be a hot spot for paranormal activity, and there seems to be definitely at least one ghost hanging out here at the Princess Theater. We'll get into talking about him and the theater in just a moment. But before that, we'd like to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Heather, Becca, Marion, Autumn, Latasha, Dante, Lynn, Ella, Elizabeth, Eric with a C, Bree, Teresa with an H, Nicole, Greg, Heidi, Dwayne, and Josephine. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment, Naughty was suggested by listener Marcus Watt. The pride of Sweden's 16th century navy was a warship called Mars. Fittingly, it was named for the Roman god of war. It was equipped with 107 guns and measured 48 meters, which made it the perfect flagship for the Swedish fleet, and it led it into the Northern Seven Years' War. During the Battle of Oland in the Baltic Sea, the Mars caught fire and it sunk beneath the water, consigning 800 to 900 Swedish and German sailors and a fortune in gold and silver coins to the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Some believe that the ship was doomed from the start by a curse. King Eric XIV had an ego and he enraged the Catholic Church when he confiscated church bells to melt down and make cannons for the Mars. The church felt the ship was too big and too powerful, and some wonder if it didn't do something to ensure its fiery fate. Other stories persist in telling stories of ghosts that rise up from the ship to conceal its location. And that would nearly seem true as it took until very recently for archaeologists and treasure hunters to find the Mars. The most unusual thing, though, is that the Mars was found nearly fully preserved, despite being on the bottom of the sea for hundreds of years, and that certainly is odd. Creepy makes history more delicious. And now, this month in history. of May on the 2nd in 1930, President Herbert Hoover made the idiotic claim that the stock market crash was a temporary setback. On October 29, 1929, Black Tuesday hit Wall Street with a catastrophic crash of the stock market. 
Investors traded 16 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day, and billions of dollars were lost. Very wealthy people lost everything, and many of them took their own lives in their desperation. Despite the fact that this threw the industrialized world into a downward spiral, President Hoover made this statement. While the crash only took place six months ago, I am convinced we have now passed the worst, and with continued unity of effort, we shall rapidly recover. There is one certainty of the future of a people of the resources, intelligence, and character of the people of the United States, and that is prosperity. As history would reveal, the Great Depression ensued as the longest-lasting economic downturn in the history of the Western industrialized world up to that time, and it lasted for 10 years. Melbourne is the capital of Victoria and home to close to 4 million people. This city is a center of diversity, and for the history of Australia, it is a symbol of the independent spirit. Victoria and Melbourne were established as autonomous colonies, working outside of government regulation and permissions. This attracted men with that same spirit. One of them would repurpose an amphitheater as the Princess Theatre. This is a theater with roots running as far back as the founding of Melbourne, and with that kind of history, one just knows the theater is ripe for hauntings. And there does seem to be some ghostly activity going on here. Join me as I share the history and hauntings of Melbourne's Princess Theater. The Kulin Nation used to live on the land that is now the city of Melbourne. That nation is made up of five separate Aboriginal language groups. And I'm going to try to say these, forgive me if I screw them up, Boonwurrung, Jajarurung, Tungurung, Watharung, and Woiwurrung. The Kulin are represented by the Boonji, which is the wedge-tailed eagle and symbolizes the creation spirit, and the Wa, which is the crow and symbolizes the protector of the waterways. And a fun fact, there are 1,500 Kulin archaeological sites with around 200 of them within the Melbourne metropolitan area itself. So this place is rich in archaeological evidence of these former tribes. The British were the first to occupy Victoria, and their original reason for this was out of fear of possible French settlement. So they decided, let's establish something here so the French don't get it, because both the British and the French, as we know, were working their way around the outside of Australia, exploring the shores there. British Lieutenant David Collins brought a party of convicts and free settlers to Port Phillip in October 1803 and established a small colony. Through the early 1800s, the area became popular with whalers and sealers. Initially, settlers from Tasmania filtered into the area and began squatting on the land. When the government tried to remove them, they resisted. And this was just the beginning of the way Melbourne and Victoria are going to become this autonomous colonial area. John Batman was an Australian entrepreneur and explorer, and he was one of the first white men to live in Melbourne. He came to Port Phillip Bay in May 1835 and quote-unquote paid the local Aboriginal people in blankets and trinkets. And in exchange for these blankets and trinkets, he got 243,000 acres of land near the Yarra River. That's a lot of land for trinkets. This would become the township of Melbourne by 1837, and Captain William Longsdale was named magistrate. New South Wales was frustrated at the lack of compliance from the autonomous Victoria, and they were forced to recognize it as a successful colony. 
Basically, they said, you know what? They aren't listening to us. We can't make them do what we want them to do, but they're doing a hell of a job. So, okay, you guys are great. We'll let you do your thing. This led to the Port Phillip District gaining independence from New South Wales in 1850. And with that, they were able to establish a separate police force, customs office, and a separate lands office, which was a big deal at that time. Things really boomed for Melbourne after that as the gold rush hit. In November 1851, alluvial gold was discovered north of Melbourne at Clunes, Anderson's Creek, Bunyan, Bunyanyong, Ballarat, Mount Alexander, and Bendigo. Ships from all over the world brought miners into the town of Melbourne. The colony swelled from a population of 80,000 to 300,000. By 1856, more than 86 million grams of gold were mined, which equaled around 100 million pounds. This eventually made Melbourne Australia's major financial center, and Victoria became an extremely wealthy colony. The good times were not always rolling, though, as the town was hit with depressions in both the 1890s and 1930s. And although I didn't find this in my research, I imagine it was the same as the gold rushes that we've talked about in previous episodes, particularly the one we just did in Alaska, where once that gold boom is done, people leave town, and so it takes the economy way down. After World War II, many migrants from Europe arrived, and today the city is considered a culturally diverse city. There are a lot of Italian and Greek people here. And so sometimes they even say that it's like the second largest Italian city in the world and the third largest Greek city in the world. One of the historical sites in this town is the Princess Theater. The Princess Theater stands in the footprint of a previous theater. That first theater dates back almost to the founding of Melbourne and was an equestrian amphitheater named the Astley Amphitheater, after the Astley Royal Amphitheater that is found in London. This was built by Tom Moore during the gold rush. So he picked a great time to build this. And as an equestrian amphitheater, it had two sections. There was a staging area where they could actually put on plays. And then there was a center area that was set up more like what I would think would be like a circus, where they would have equestrian entertainment, horses doing different things in the center. In 1857, that amphitheater was remodeled into a theater and opera house by George Coppin. Coppin had spent his entire life on the stage, making his first appearance as an infant. At the age of seven, he and his sister had their own act. He was born in England, but set his sights on Australia in 1842. And actually, that's not entirely honest. He didn't really set his sights on Australia necessarily. It was more like a coin set his sights on Australia. If it had been tails, he would have been headed to America. He started in Sydney working in theaters and bought a hotel. He moved on to Melbourne eventually and started converting buildings into theaters. He had a real knack for this. So it was like, oh, that used to be a such and such building. Well, I'm going to make that a theater. And then over there, there's another one. Same deal. He also started importing luxuries. And these luxuries included things like ice, deer, so they could have venison meat, and live turtles. But it was with theater that he really made his mark on Australia. He only owned the newly remodeled amphitheater for a short period of time, and the theater changed hands almost every year. Due to the constant change in ownership, the building deteriorated and was basically taken down to a shell and rebuilt from scratch in 1865. The theater was successful again after that, but by January 3rd, 1885, it was closed after falling into disrepair once again. And this same story is going to be told over and over about this theater. It has all kinds of love, has great success, and then it goes into disrepair. I don't know why it keeps falling into disrepair. 
if you're a successful theater, generally you keep the plays going and keep the place upkept, but apparently that was not the case. Three of Australia's most influential theater practitioners, J.C. Williamson, George Musgrove, and Arthur Garner, formed the Triumvirate, and they bought what was left of the theater, demolished it, and rebuilt the theater that stands today at a cost of 50,000 pounds. The architect was William Pitt. Construction took nine months, and the new Princess Theater opened on December 18, 1886. The theater was built in the Second Empire style, and that Second Empire refers to elements from the Second French Empire. This can be seen in the theater's three four-sided Gramble-style mansard hip roofs with dormer windows on each side. It's a really cool-looking theater, and if you have access to the cover photo for this episode, you'll see it. Just really neat, that mansard roof, and that's what they are. They're kind of these Gramble-styled hip roofs. Each of these roofs has its own crown made with cast iron filigree at the very top. I think that was kind of to give it the quote-unquote princess effect, so that it has its little tiaras on each roof, I guess is how you could put it. The middle section of the exterior features two sections of exquisite stained glass. Now, these weren't built at that time. These were added in 1901 to outdoor terraces to create a winter garden bar. The front foyer and stairs were made from marble and were said to be equal to that found in the Paris Opera, the Frankfurt Stat, and the Grand in Bordeaux. The stage lighting was state-of-the-art. The most unique thing about this theater that is still there today is that it has a retractable roof. So they're able to open it up and let the air in. And I suppose you could sit in the theater and actually look up and see the stars. So we've talked about various theaters, especially here in America, that were painted to look like they had stars on the roof. This one had the real deal. The first performance as The New Princess was opened was The Mikado. Ownership changed again in 1910, and the poor theater found itself in the hands of several owners yet again. In 1915, theatrical producer Ben Fuller took control and partnered with American stage actor and dancer Hugh J. Ward. Several years later, they hired architect Henry Eli White to extensively renovate the auditorium and foyers, and the grand copper awning that is now outside of it was added at that time. The theater reopened on December 26, 1922, with a performance of The O'Brien Girl. In 1933, F.T. Films purchased the theater, and the initials F.T. were carved over the proscenium arch for F.W. Thring, the theater entrepreneur. He made the Princess Theater the first home of his radio station, 3XY, and I believe that launched in 1935 is what I read. When he died, Ben Fuller took over the lease once again and eventually purchased the theater with Garnet Carroll. From 1942 to 1947, the princess ran exclusively as a cinema due to the scarcities of World War II. So as is the case with a lot of these older theaters throughout the world, they weren't just stage theaters. They were transformed into cinemas for brief periods of time. And even today in some cities, some of these older theaters, that's what they are. They're like a a movie theater today that used to be a stage. And I have to tell you, one of the most gorgeous theaters that I've ever walked into, and I wasn't even able to go all the way into the lobby area, is in Louisville. I can't remember what the name of it is. I'm sure that Dina of Twisted Philly is screaming it at me right now because I could see the picture that she took and the picture that I took. But if you get a chance to go into Louisville, it's got the big lighted and it starts with a P, I think. Gosh, I wish I could remember. Anyway, it's got the big lighted, all the lights, the neon lights and everything. Was it the Paradise? Something like that. 
if you get a chance to go in there, go in there and look through the like gated doors and stuff like that. It's just the statuary that's in there and stuff. So cool. Fuller died in 1952 and Carol assumed full control, bringing an array of opera, ballet, musical comedy and drama to the stage. His big moment was hosting the National Theater Movement's gala performance of The Tales of Hoffman. And this was put on before Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. Carol was fond of American musicals and produced many of them, including Kismet in 1954, The Sound of Music in 1960, The King and I in 1960, and Carousel in 1964. Garnet Carroll died in 1964, and ownership of the princess then passed on to his son, John Carroll. He kind of kept up things the way his dad had been doing it, bringing a lot of these musicals to the stage. I don't know if he got bored or just decided he wanted to move on, but he eventually leased the theater to the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust. In 1973, the theater was listed by the National Trust. David Mariner purchased the theater in 1986 and refurbished it back to its 1922 state, minus the old technical stuff. Now, some people might say, hey, if you're going to refurbish this thing back to its original state, you got to go back to the 1880s or something like that. Well, what happened is when they got to looking at the way it was built and some of the stuff that was there at that time, so much had been changed and all of the refurbs and renovations that had been done that it was nearly impossible to try to get it back to the way it was in the 1880s. They felt like 1922 was the furthest back that they could get. And they did a really great job getting it to that. They took 2,000 paint samples and they microscopically analyzed them to ensure that they got an accurate reproduction of the original paint. Painters were trained on site in the special techniques that were used in 1922. And one of those techniques was this thing called color glazing, which is when the colors are blended from a darker hue to a lighter range near the central sunburst. Original light fixtures were found and replicated. The Princess reopened yet again, and this time it was with the musical Les Miserables, followed by The Phantom of the Opera, which is one of my favorite. The production of Phantom would become the longest-running show ever staged in Victoria. Today, the Princess Theatre is known as the home of musical theatre in Australia, and it's beloved for that. And this David Mariner group still owns it, so they're the ones who control it, the ones who took it back to this 1922 state. And they've it's just a gorgeous theatre from what I can see. I'd love to see it in person, obviously, one day. And since we mentioned the Phantom of the Opera, on the topic of phantoms, the Princess Theater seems to have its own resident phantom, it would seem. Frederick Baker was known to the world as Federici. He was an Italian-born opera singer who performed during the late 1800s. He was world-renowned for his work in the bass baritone roles of the Savoy operas written by Gilbert and Sullivan. His career started in London in 1872 when he was 21, and he eventually originated the role of the Pirate King in Pirates of Penzance. In 1887, Federici traveled to Australia with his wife and kids and joined J.C. Williamson's company. This brought him to the stage at the Princess Theatre. He played Florian in the first production in Australia of Princess Ida. Other roles in Australia included the Mikado, the Pirate King again, Dick Deadeye, Colonel Calverly, and Streffen. His final role would be at the Princess Theatre in 1888, and he played the role of Mephistopheles in Faust. Eerily, as he was traveling down a trapdoor through what looked like smoke and flame to portray his character's plunge into hell, he suffered a massive heart attack. They took him to a back room, hoped that they could stabilize him, tried to save his life, but it was way too late. It was basically a widow maker. It just didn't kill him right away. 
they let the play finish out before they told anybody what had happened or any of the actors what had happened. Even though the actor's body was removed from the theater, his spirit seems to have not left. There are many stories of people experiencing the ghost of Federici. Stories come from past and present staff and theater patrons alike. The first story that is told about him goes all the way back to the night he died. Now, as they say, the show must go on. Seems that Federici must have believed that because even though he died, he didn't seem to move on. He was going to stay there and he was going to be there all the way up until the curtain call. Many of the cast had no idea that he had passed away until after the final curtain call. When they were told, they were shocked because they all swore that he was on stage with them taking that final curtain call. They had no reason to believe that he was not there. He's one of the stars of the show. You'd kind of notice if he wasn't there for the curtain call, right? So I tend to believe that his spirit was there because wouldn't you think they'd say something about, um, maybe we should wait to do the bow until Federici gets up here? Many people have seen what they describe as unexplained balls of fluorescent light that hover about the stage, almost as if his spirit is still hanging out on the stage acting, and it's just appearing as this ball of light. Equipment malfunctions during performances. This is something we hear a lot, especially soundboards and lighting. Unexplained noises are heard coming from within the wings and corridors. And more harrowing, of course, are the bizarre accidents that have taken place, whether it's ladders being moved when workers are trying to do things, things falling from the upper rafters, almost hitting people. There's just a lot of different accidents that should not be taking place, and they can't explain them. Jesse Kane is the theater's business development manager, and he said, I guess they call him Fred, Fred is very much a benevolent presence. Nothing nasty ever happens. He's more of a friendly poltergeist. So the bizarre accidents, I don't know. That seems like it might not be necessarily a friendly poltergeist to me. I don't know. If some kind of weight comes slamming down next to you, you're not going to be like, oh, Fred, you're so funny. Stop that. When a documentary was made nearly 80 years later by Kennedy Miller in the early 1970s, a photograph of the film set revealed an ashen-faced, partly transparent observer. Nobody had seen anyone matching that person on the set that day. Ernest St. Clair took on the role of Mephistopheles after Federici's death, and he swore that every time he stepped forward to take his bow, invisible hands pushed him backwards. So apparently, Federici wasn't very happy with him taking over that part. During a late-night rehearsal, a staff member saw a figure sitting in the dress circle and asked his staff who had let a visitor in. The employees said they hadn't let anybody in, and a search was called for to find the stranger. And he was never found. And mentioning that dress circle, for those of you who don't know, the dress circle when it comes to theater is the second level of seating or the first few rows of the first balcony. And yes, I looked that up because I didn't know. Many performers have seen the full-bodied apparition of Federici walking in the halls. And just as this staff member had seen this figure sitting in the dress circle, that seems to be the place where he is seen most often, is in that dress circle. He's seen dressed in evening attire complete with cloak and top hat. So it's not even that he's dressed for a part. It's as if he's dressed up to come to the theater and watch what's going on there. His specter seems to be scrutinizing the stage performances. His apparition stays seated in the seat for so long that people can make out the finer details of the way he looks. That's pretty amazing. It's not like he just appears and disappears. When his spirit is seen on an opening night, it is thought to be good luck for the run of the production. The theater staff always ensure a vacant seat within the dress circle on opening nights to better ensure that his spirit makes its appearance so then they get a good run for their next production. 
I found this article about the Haunted Melbourne Ghost Tour. If you live anywhere near there or visiting, I suggest you take it. It sounds like they hit a lot of really cool places. And what it says about the Princess Theatre is, early theatre owners spotted a way to get a bit of good publicity for the theatre and offered up £100 to any member of the public prepared to spend a night alone in the theatre. There is no record of anyone ever taking up their challenge. In the very early 1900s, a new fire alarm system was placed in the theatre. The resident fireman was required to punch a time clock every hour, triggering a light on a switchboard at a nearby fire station. If he failed to clock in, an alarm was raised and a brigade dispatched to the theater. One particular night during a heat wave, no message came through on the hour, and within minutes, the brigade was dispatched. Because as we know, once a fire hit in a theater, it was really deadly. On reaching the theater, the firemen, finding no sign of a fire, discovered their colleague huddled in a corner, terrified beyond belief. He later claimed that he had opened the sliding section of the roof to let the heat out and some air in. As the panels opened, bright moonlight came into the auditorium revealing a figure standing, statue-like, on center stage. He described this figure as a tall, well-built man with distinguished features, dressed in evening clothes with a long cloak and a top hat. The best-known sighting of the ghost occurred in 1917. The theater's wardrobe mistress was working back late to finish costumes for an upcoming production. At approximately 2.30 a.m., a fireman knocked gently on her work door room and stuck his head inside and asked her if she'd like to see a ghost. Can you imagine? You're working at 2 o'clock in the morning and this fireman comes by and goes, Hey, I got something to show you. Want to see a ghost? It's not like you're asking, would you like to see a puppy? The skeptical woman's curiosity got the better of her and she went with him. They went up some side stairs to a landing beside the dress circle. The fireman pointed to Federici, who was sitting in the middle of the second row of the dress circle. He was staring down at the empty stage as the fireman and the wardrobe mistress looked on. They eventually left the ghost and returned back to their work, quite amazed at what they'd seen. A couple of years later, another fireman had an experience. He saw the ghost standing in the same spot on two separate occasions. So it would seem the people who see him a lot were these firemen. The Princess Theater was unique and innovative in its day with a retractable roof. The theater faced many years of disrepair and neglect and then renovation. This alone, with the emotions connected to acting, usually ensure that a theater is going to have ghostly activity. Throw in the death of an actor, and you might just have yourself a haunted theater. Is Melbourne's Princess Theater haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, just another great location to check out down under. Would love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you would like to send some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump.com at gmail.com. We did get a comment over on the website from Karen. She says, thank you for your podcast on Old Town Spring. I'm glad someone finally covered the history and the haunting there. Just an interesting note. The reason the Wunchy Cafe is under construction at the time of your cast is because it caught fire yet again. So apparently it catches fire a lot. I live only a couple of miles from Old Town Spring. Also, thank you for covering the Baker Hotel and Mineral Wells. I've grown up knowing about this hotel since my father received treatment for polio there. His doctor was located in the lobby of the Baker Hotel. Recently, my dad took my sister, me, and our daughters to visit it again. I have some pictures we took when we were there, and they are in the process of trying to renovate it and open it. They also do ghost tours there. So if you are in Mineral Wells, check out the Baker Hotel. I'm very excited to hear that they are getting it renovated, and uh, that'll be great to have it open again because it's a gorgeous-looking hotel, and you always hate to see those go into disrepair. We also got an email from Autumn, who we just welcomed into the Spooktacular crew. Hi, I'm a new listener to your wonderful podcast. I found this podcast while struggling to find something that would not put me to sleep at work. History Goes Bump is such a wonderful and fun show to listen to. 
This has two of my favorite subjects, ghosts and history. I've always loved history since I was younger and actually dreamed of becoming an English history teacher. My love of ghosts comes from several experiences I've had since I was younger. I'll tell you my favorite experience. So here it is. When I was a teenager, I was spending the summer with my mother in Virginia. My sisters had told me about the ghost of a woman who haunted the back part of the trailer. She killed herself in the back bathroom, but never went past the line separating the dining room from the living room. Well, I was asleep on a futon one night with my head right at that invisible line. I was awoken around two in the morning by something or someone shaking me quite hard on the shoulder. I sat up quickly and looked around, but there was no one there. There was no way my sisters could have done this because they would have had to push aside the table chairs that were in the way. Needless to say, the rest of the summer, I slept with the futon on the other side of the living room. I don't blame you, Autumn. And then uh, she sent us a request for a location. So I've got that on our suggestions list. So thank you for that. I know many of you have heard this already, but I'm going to go ahead and play it again. This is a little blurb from Dina of the Twisted Philly podcast talking about the upcoming Potter and Love Conference. If you guys have not signed up for this, consider joining me in New Orleans. I would love to hang out with you guys there. And it's a chance for you to meet a lot of your independent podcasters that you love out there. Hi, I'm Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. And I've got a question for you. Do you love podcasts? Because I sure do. And that's why the podcast community, Podcast We Listen To, is hosting their very first podcast convention for listeners. It's called Podern Love. The Podern Love convention is for listeners by listeners. It's for all of us. And it includes podcasts from every genre you could imagine, including comedy, movies and TV, pop culture, paranormal, history, health and fitness, true crime, and so many more. Our first convention is August 10th, 11th, and 12th, 2018, in one of the coolest cities in the country, New Orleans, Louisiana. And it's being held at the Intercontinental Hotel, which is a premier French Quarter hotel. The location is amazing, and the room rate can't be beat either. It's only $129 a night. Tickets are on sale on the website at www.pottern.love. That's www.podern.love. Dot L-O-V-E. There are over 40 independent podcasts already lined up to present at Potter Love, and we'll be adding more before the convention. Plus, featured podcasters have discount codes, so you can get a discount on your tickets. Be sure to follow Potter Love on Twitter and Facebook for the latest convention updates, news, information about new shows that are joining, and links to a dedicated website just for Potter Love attendees to book their hotel room. We can't wait to see you this August in New Orleans. And the code, if you want to get a discount on your tickets for History Goes Bump, is BUMP. B-U-M-P. Enter that and you'll get 10% off. Have a couple of Apple Podcast reviews to share. The first one is from Ramo. What a perfect combination. Five stars. Love the show. The two hosts are insightful and funny. They are a pleasure to listen to and they make the workday go by quicker. Thank you. And then Rebecca, love your show, five stars. Hi, I just love your podcast. For as long as I can remember, I've loved ghost stories. As I got older, I realized that I was more interested in the story behind the haunting than just the stories about the hauntings. I also love the sections at the beginning of your podcast. Love learning new historical facts. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. If you guys haven't given us a review over at iTunes, would greatly appreciate that. Or if your podcast catcher, something like Stitcher, allows you to give us a review, please do so. We'd love to get those. 
And also, I don't do it very often on here, guys, but if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your friends, family, people that you know that love podcasts. For example, I was flying home from LA this weekend and I was sitting next to a really nice guy. He asked if I was heading home to Orlando and I said, yes, are you? And he said, no, I actually come from Philly. And then he said, well, actually, I come from Delaware, but I always tell people Philly because Delaware just really has nothing there. And I immediately said, oh, well, my good friend Dina hosts a podcast about Philly. It's called the Twisted Philly Podcast. And he was really excited to check it out. So just little things like that really help us independent podcasters to get out there. There are so many new podcasts starting. We tend to get drowned in it. So you guys can help get us out of that by sharing your favorite podcasts with people who listen. I greatly appreciate that. I also appreciate you guys joining me for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard Lisa, who will be getting a chest tomb, and Beth Vanderyacht is going to be getting a garden crypt. So more, Grave Digger, there's some work for you. Welcome, ladies. Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. <laughs>